Good morning, everybody. My name is Nathaniel. I'm the Missional Communities Director here at Storehouse, and I am so grateful that you could join us today. Um, today we are continuing our sermon series that we just started, uh, Contend, Contend. And so this sermon series is in Jude, which is the book right before Revelation, okay? It's very short, uh, no chapters actually. And so today we are in verses three and four. And Jude is, uh, it was introduced last week by Pastor Marco, and he kind of gave this uh, big overall view. And so today, we're actually getting a little bit more specific. And so the name for the sermon series is Contend. And today, we're going to dive into uh, what that word means and exactly what Jude is talking about, because the word contend comes out of these verses that we're going to be talking about today. And so real quick recap, contend literally means to struggle aggressively. And the original language is actually even talking about wrestling as a sport. Um, and so if you've ever wrestled before, I only wrestled for one year in junior high. I was, I think it was seventh grade, but it's hard. Like wrestling is very difficult. It, it, you know, really takes a lot of energy. You're on the mat for like 30 seconds and you feel like it's been five hours. And so this is the illustration that Jude is really kind of trying to convey when he starts writing, um, to this church. And so he's saying we need to struggle aggressively against false teaching. And so that's what Jude is talking about, false teaching. And another point of clarification, he is talking about false teaching within the church. And so I think it's, uh, it's way too often where we go out and say, hey, non-Christians are saying this and this and this about God and about Christianity, about the church, and we get all riled up about it. Non-Christians don't know Christ, and so we can't expect them to have a knowledge of who he is. Jude is saying that we should get really riled up. We should have a righteous anger toward those who are within the church, professing to know who Jesus is, to know who God is, and they're still teaching a false gospel. And so what we're gonna talk about, not just for today, but through this entire sermon series, is false teaching within the church from people professing to know who Christ is. It's not about false teachers outside of the church. This is within the church. In Matthew 7, 15, Jesus says that we should beware of false prophets who come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. These are people claiming to be Christians in the church. And I want you to hear this. This is relevant today. This is not something just for you know, Jude's time, for the church he was writing to. This is not something that happens in other parts of the world or other parts of the country, other denominations. This is something relevant today to us here in the valley, in the American church, everywhere. This is relevant. And so I want to give a few examples to try to hammer in how important it is for us to take this seriously. And so first I'll start kind of broad, okay? I'll start with Mormons. Now, pretty much all Christians understand that Mormonism is not Christianity, but they claim to be Christians. And to the world, they profess to be Christians. All right, let's get it a little, a little you know, deeper in. What about televangelists who have these healing ministries 
on the TV where what they really are claiming is that they can heal through their own power. I mean, specifically, I'm thinking of Kenneth Copeland, who just recently said that through his own power, you know, that God has given him, he could heal anyone of COVID if they just touched the TV while he's on and send a few bucks his way. (laughs) These are false teachings claiming to do it in the name of Christ. All right, we're gonna now get a little bit more subtle. Might hit a little closer to home. Ligonier Ministries puts out a survey, the state of theology, and it's fantastic. You should Google it, check it out. And so I'm just going to read a few statistics from this state of theology. And this is specifically America, the United States. And so they survey non-Christians and Christians. And so I'm going to focus just on what were the results of the survey of Christians within the United States? What was their response to a few theological questions? 30% of professing Christians in the United States believe that Jesus was not God, just a teacher. Almost a third of professing Christians in the United States. 47% of professing Christians do not affirm the Trinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A cornerstone of our faith. Don't worry, it gets worse. 53% of professing Christians believe that they can receive special permission to sin, a small sin, not a big one, a small sin, if they feel like God is letting them do it. Over half of the church in America think that a small sin is okay. 55% of the American church does not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Without the resurrection, there is no salvation. 74% of the American church does not believe in objective truth. Without objective truth, there is no God. Because God is truth. 84% of the American church believe that salvation could possibly happen in other religions outside of Jesus Christ. 84%. If we look at these statistics, this is across the American church, and the State of Theology does a great job. Like, it is a big survey. And so this is fairly accurate in terms of the total sample size that we have. According to these statistics, the valley More than half of the valley who claim to be Christians do not know who God is. This is sobering. This should grieve us. It should invoke righteous anger in us that people who claim to live life in the name of Jesus Christ are sharing false gospels that are leading people astray, even within the church. What Jude is talking about throughout this entire book, this whole sermon series, this is relevant. We have to take this seriously. We have to be prepared to be able to address this. 
And that's, that's my main idea for today, is that every Christian must be prepared to earnestly contend for the gospel against false teaching within the church. Every Christian must be prepared to earnestly contend for the gospel against false teaching that happens within the church. And so what we're gonna do today is I'm gonna break down what Jude uh, talks about when he's saying false teaching. We're gonna talk specifically about what that false teaching is, what it looks like, our reaction to it. And I'm gonna try to be systematic in it so that way one, I don't get emotional because this whole week as I have been praying and going through this, I've, I've been angry because this is wrong. This is within the church. People who are supposed to be the first to proclaim the gospel are lying about our Savior. So I'm gonna read the two verses that we'll be in today, and then I'm gonna pray and we're gonna dive into what false teaching is according to Jude and scripture. So Jude, verses three and four, says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I worship you right now in this place. I am so grateful for the worship uh, that our team, our, our worship band led us in this morning. Holy Spirit, you, you are working even now among us, and I am so grateful for that. God, I ask that as we move into the time of the preached word, as we look at scripture and what you have taught us about false teaching, I ask that you open our minds and our hearts to the sin in our own lives, the sin that exists within the church that is perverting the grace that you offer freely to all. God, help us to be able to honor you and glorify you. Allow us to serve you. And Lord, I ask that you put me aside and, and Holy Spirit, let your truth from Scripture come out in this time. Thank you, Lord, for who you are. Amen. All right, so what we're going to do is uh, start out with what types of false teaching is Jude talking about? the types. We got two types of false teaching. And a real quick note before we get into this, <clears throat> what Jude is talking about and what I'm going to talk about is a combination. This is all within the church, okay? But it is a combination of Christians and non-Christians, okay? I'm not saying that if you find yourself guilty of some of these things, I'm not saying you're not a Christian, okay? I want to make that clear, now there is truth that within the church there are people who claim to be Christians and they are not. And some know that and do it anyway and some don't know that. I'm also saying that those who teach false, false gospel doesn't necessarily mean that you're not a Christian. It may just mean that uh, maybe you were taught something incorrect. Maybe you just don't know your Bible well enough. 
okay? So I'm just going to say up front, this is for Christians and non-Christians within the church, but I am not condemning anybody, okay? I don't know your salvation. That's between you and God, okay? But I am gonna say that if you do find yourself lying in one of these camps throughout today, then the answer is simple, repent. Whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, repent. Turn away from that sin and turn toward God and you'll be fine, okay? The answer is the same across both camps. Okay, so types of false teaching. We've got two types. First type of false teaching is sinful living. Jude says that there are those who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. Sensuality, that word in the original language, is a caving into desires of the flesh. That's what it literally means. And the flesh, throughout Scripture and throughout um, Greek and Hebrew specifically, what it's talking about is overindulging in selfish desires, basically. So it's not just like sexual sin. You know, a lot of people think sensuality, we're talking about just sexual sin or or things that have to do with the body. That's not necessarily it. It it could be anger. Could be that you live a life where anger completely controls you. Okay? So this is just caving into desires that you have to act selfishly for your own gain or profit or to make yourself feel better. Honestly, it's just living a life in opposition to God. You're living a life that's not obedient to what we see in Scripture. This is a life that everyday Christians begin to accept sinful behavior as normal. And I mean, this, this could manifest itself in multiple ways. And some of you may have been starting thinking about a few things already. I mean, this could be anything um, from coveting, right? Desiring things that you don't have to the point where it makes you a little bitter towards somebody who does have it. This could be uh, just acting selfishly. Oh, I, I, I'm not going to forgive them until they come to me first. A little pride in there. It could be lying. It, it, I mean, this could be anything that your life is not honoring God in obedience. And so we live a sinful life. And it could be even more dramatic okay, then maybe these little things that are still sin, but it could be somebody who's leading a double life, who goes to church on Sunday, and then they're in the club getting drunk on Monday. This could be the person who says all the right things, and they go to church, and they attend MC, they do all this stuff, and yet they're addicted to pornography every single evening. This could be somebody that in their heart they harbor resentment and bitterness toward another person. I could never go back and forgive my parents for what they did. These small things, these small sins that we think of as small, it's still sin. This is still sin and it leads to us to live a lifestyle where sin becomes the norm. It's okay to sin. That's all that it really is. Matthew 7, 15 through 20, Jesus says, this is where he's saying, beware of the false prophets, right? They're in sheep's clothing. You will recognize these false prophets by their fruits. 
goes on in 18, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You will recognize them by their fruit. What kind of fruit is your life producing? Are you producing good godly fruit where somebody looks at you and they know that you're a Christian and they know that they can trust you, they know that you will uh, honor your word to them, they know that they don't have to worry about you cheating or, or cutting corners? Does your boss know that you are a believer and a trustworthy person? Or is the fruit in your life just like everybody else? Is there no difference? There should be a difference in our lives as believers. God has called us to a holy life. And through his grace, he has transformed us into new creatures where we can live a holy life. Sin has no power over us anymore. And so when we live in sin habitually and constantly, it's your fault. What kind of fruit are you producing? And fruit is what people see. It's what they see around you. What kind of fruit are you producing? And we'll get into this a little bit more later. But I'm going to jump to the second type of false teaching. And so this is sinful living. This is uh, anyone. This, this is not actually like somebody on stage preaching or a teacher in a Bible study. This is just your life. Are you teaching a false gospel? And the next one is actually a false gospel, proclaiming this. And this is um, teaching a doctrine that is incorrect. Actually teaching it. Now this doesn't, once again, have to be up here. When you have a conversation with somebody is what you say accurate? Or are you spouting something that is not according to scripture? Are you teaching false gospels? We are always teaching something, all of us. If you're a parent especially, you know this. Your kids pick it up. You are always teaching something. When you're at work, you're teaching something to everyone around you. What are you teaching? Are you teaching Jesus? Or are you teaching something else? Through the things you say and the way you act. That's what Jude is saying. Through the way people act and the things that they say, they're teaching a false gospel. And he found it necessary to address this we must find it necessary to address false teaching in our own lives and within the church. And so those are the two types of false teaching, the way we live and the way we speak. What are some characteristics of false teaching that Jude brings up? Well, one, it's unexpected. He said that, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, he wanted to just say, guys, like, this is great, isn't it? Jesus is awesome. I'm so thankful for his grace in both of our lives. That's all he wanted to say, and we would have never even read this letter. Instead, he says, I found it necessary to write appealing that you contend for the faith. Jude did not expect to find false teaching 
and we never expect to find false teaching. We don't. We, I mean, we would hope that the church is a safe place where we can come to learn about scripture, to learn about Jesus and who God is. And personally, we never intend, if you are a believer, you never intend for a false gospel to take root in your life. But it starts small and then it grows because of various reasons, but most often just because we we don't truly know who God is or we deny it. So I'm gonna I'm gonna give an example that has been very prevalent within the American church especially over the last few decades. And I even just saw something recent, and that is sexual sin within pastors in the American church. I mean, you you can all immediately think of a few examples just from the news. How does that happen? Are these men not Christians? Were they just kind of saying a lie throughout their entire life and into their ministry and to this point where then they have to step down from ministry or they are cast out from the church because of sexual sin or affair or whatever it may be? Sin starts small and then it perverts and it corrupts the grace of God. And so when we're talking about something like a pastor being forced out of his position because of sexual sin, oftentimes the way it starts is something super small like walking down the street and an attractive woman walks by and they take a double take. They look again. And then they're like, oh, I shouldn't do that, right? Next time they do it again, they don't even correct themselves. And then they start thinking about that later. They watch movies and TV shows that have sexual scenes and nudity in it, and they start thinking about those scenes throughout the day. It leads to fantasies. They still haven't done anything, but it starts small. Their heart is hardened, and it grows, and it grows. And then we get to the place where all of a sudden they're having these fantasies about people they randomly see on the street and they're like, I don't know what to do with this. So they turn to pornography. Start looking at pornography. Maybe just once a month. Hardens the heart. It grows. Sin becomes normal. And it grows and it grows and it escalates to the point where then they are found out. Maybe they had an affair, hired a prostitute, did whatever. The sin of this great sexual sin that you know are requiring these pastors to be cast aside or step aside, we see those things and we're like, oh, those are such a you know bad thing that they did. I can't believe they did that to their congregation. I can't believe all this. And yet, if we catch them way back when, years earlier, doing a double take on an attractive woman, we say nothing. Because they didn't do anything. That's still a sin. It is still sin to lust. And yet we don't care. We only care about these big things that affect us or other people or these big you know, sins that we think are worth more than the others. But it starts small and it grows. What sins are in your life right now that you see is just small and they don't matter? 
What sins do you see in your brothers and sisters' lives that you recognize, but you're like, that's none of my business. It's okay. They're not really doing anything. Does sin disgust us, or is it normal? We never expect heresy. We never expect false teaching to creep into the church. That's because it's sneaky. Number two, it's sneaky. Jude says that it crept in unnoticed, and then it perverted the grace. The best lies are those that are closest to the truth. These false teachings, they don't directly stand in opposition to the gospel. Not at first. They pervert the gospel. They take a thing that has some truth in it and lead it to the place where it becomes completely different than the gospel. Let's take the divinity of Jesus, right? I read that statistic earlier. So many people don't believe that, God, that Jesus is God, and that's wrong. And it begins because we start looking at it and we make compromises saying, oh yes, he was a really, really good teacher. He was a really good teacher, and people hammer that. Oh yeah, he was a good teacher, he was a good prophet, you know, but other religions also believe that. You know? Oh yeah, they do. Absolutely. And then it turns into the question of, man, was he really God though? Does that even make sense? Can God be man and God at the same time? I mean, he was here walking on earth. Surely it wasn't like 100% God, you know? Maybe maybe like 50% God, you know? He was the Messiah, but Maybe he was a man who just had some divinity in him. Or maybe he was like a, a demigod, you know? He was like Hercules or something. You know, that people think this. We see these things and then it progresses more and more to now where a third of the church doesn't believe he's even God at all. It's sneaky. It happens unnoticed. It creeps in and it takes a truth and it corrupts it and perverts it. And before we know it, we're caught up in the lie ourselves where we believe it full-heartedly and we don't even know that we're believing something false. And lastly, this is, this is dangerous. False teaching is dangerous. I mean, just look at the statistics that I read. The truth is the American church does not know who God is. Over half deny truth that is essential to salvation. That means the American church doesn't know God. And yet it's supposed to be the voice that is bringing people into his grace and love. Rather, because of false teaching within the church, it is pushing people away more and more. And it is taking people who have been in the church and making them believe that none of this is really true. I know for a fact that that was my own experience. I grew up in the church. My parents are amazing believers and they teach truth, and they did everything right. 
I did not become a Christian until university, though, because I had seen uh, youth pastor after youth pastor after youth pastor just come through our church, and none of them acted the way a believer should, and they taught things that just wasn't accurate in Scripture. My impression was that none of this is true. God is, is surely not real, or if he is, he doesn't care about us because these people would not be in this position otherwise. False teaching within the church kept me from the best thing in my life now for 19 years. And I can never get those years back. And thankfully, the Holy Spirit revealed his own character to me when I was 19, 20, and I was able to accept that grace. But so many people don't. I can guarantee that many in here, if not everyone, knows somebody who has been in the church at some point in their life and now they have nothing to do with it because the church was terrible. The church is terrible because the church doesn't know God. And it is our responsibility to correct this. Today I'm going to give a lot of examples, okay? And I, I've already called out Copeland and Mormons and stuff, and I might do it more, but I'm going to give a couple of examples, okay? And these are specific, and I hope it's convicting. We need to be convicted so that we repent of our sin. So here's an example from today, okay? This is common sinful behaviors we see within the church. Now, I could have gone in any direction, and I thought of various things, even within my own life. I mean, we could talk about pride. We could talk about coveting. We could talk about gluttony. Nobody likes to talk about gluttony in the church. We could talk about selfish behavior. How my way is the only way. But, but I think what I'm going to do is I'm just going to talk about something super basic. Lying. Lying is a common practice in the church. And we're fine with that. We exaggerate the truth. We tell a story, make ourselves look just a little bit better. Or we're telling a story and may make somebody else look just a little bit worse because you need to know that they wronged me. We make plans with people knowing full well we're going to cancel. <laughs> or we ghost them completely. <laughs> Don't even show up. Matthew 5:37, Jesus says that let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more comes from evil. And he's talking about we shouldn't say I promise or I swear I'll do this because that means that we're naturally untrustworthy. Do people truly take you at your word? And I will freely say that I have failed in this many times. But is your yes a yes and is your no a no? Or do people doubt it? Do they not really expect what you say to happen? 
This one's a little, little uh, sensitive too. Do you say you'll be there at eight o'clock and you show up at 8.45? I'm just saying. If you're gonna be there at 8.45, say I'll be there at 8.45. <laughs> I'm just saying. Is your yes yes and your no no? Or has lying become so normal for us that we don't even call it lying anymore? Sin is sin. A Christian should be known for their word more than anyone else. Here's another example. It's going to be about politics. So get ready for this. There's this concept that is taught freely of the evangelical vote. The evangelical vote is a false teaching, and it's a lie that is perpetuated by many people, saying that Christians are going to vote in a singular block because one party or the other is inherently Christian. Right now, that party is the Republican Party. It hasn't always been, and it probably will change in the future, but right now, the false teaching is that if you are a Christian, you have to vote Republican. They have the evangelical vote. And this is perpetuated by pastors who claim that voting for a Democrat is wrong and sinful. Robert Jeffress, a megachurch pastor in Dallas, huge influence in the American church, has the ear of the president. He said straight up, voting for Biden, if you are a Christian and you are voting for Joe Biden, you have, quote, sold your soul to the devil. He's saying you're not a Christian. If you vote Democrat in this election, you're not a Christian. This is a prominent pastor saying this. I have news for you, neither party is Christian. Both parties teach, absolutely teach, things that are completely against the word of God. Neither party is 100% according to scripture. And if you want specifics, you can talk to me later, but I'm not gonna get into it because we'll be here all day. So I don't care if you vote Republican or Democrat, Libertarian, you don't vote at all because of your conscience. I don't care because guess what? It has nothing to do with your salvation. This idea that a marriage to a political figure or a political party is essential for Christianity is just wrong. And all this is doing is forcing Christians and non-Christians to believe that everything that party stands for lines up with scripture. And we are denying grace to people. This is false teaching within the church. False teaching in our daily lives, our normal behaviors, false teaching in things being said and proclaimed throughout America. And it is common and it's okay to most of us. And so let's look at our reactions. What are our reactions to false teaching? 
our first reaction is that, well, we're ignorant of it. There's oftentimes we just don't know. And that could be due to many things, whether it's somebody just didn't teach you at all, they taught you poorly, or you just don't know your Bible. You don't read it. You don't study it. Or it could even be that you subconsciously deny the truth you see in Scripture. Okay? This is not just talking about an ignorance born from like, I'm not, I'm not reading enough or I'm not doing enough. And I'm going to give a specific example from my own life and my own sin. So get ready for it. I just, this was just a month ago, okay? Just a month ago, the Holy Spirit convicted me of a sin in my life that I had no clue existed. Basically, I had believed um, in a functional deism. And what that means is that basically God is up there doing his thing or whatever, but he doesn't actually interact in my own life. I didn't even realize it because I know the truth. I've preached the truth and I know this and I believed it in other people. But I denied it in myself because I honestly thought I was just a piece of crap. My sin led to self-loathing and hatred and a denial of the work of the Holy Spirit in my own life. Not because I didn't know it, but because I had chosen some time before to not believe it. And so I was living in ignorance. And when the Holy Spirit revealed this to me in a time when I was just reading Leviticus, which how many of us read Leviticus very often? Not very. But it says that we are holy because God is holy. He makes us holy. That hit me because I had always preached to myself that he makes others holy because he makes them holy, but I'm not. There's no hope for me. I was ignorant. Not because I didn't know it, but because I had denied it. What areas of scripture are you denying? And what areas do you just not know because you don't read? How many of you have read Leviticus lately? Get in your Bible, know it, read it, and believe it is true. Because too often our reaction to false teaching is just, who knew? Our second reaction is that we are apathetic toward it. We just allow it. And we've kind of talked about this a little bit, and Jude addresses this when he says that we must contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Okay, this is a weird sentence, and he says it really weird. But what he's saying is that he is seeing an apathy in the church that he's writing to toward biblical truth because they have forgotten the truth that was taught to them, taught to the apostles. Rather, they are enjoying and living a life that is reflecting popular trends in theology or just pop culture in general. Now, I don't think I need to tell you that the American church is swayed by pop culture very often. And not just pop culture in the secular world, like Hollywood or anything like that. I'm talking about theological pop culture. Like we are swayed by this. One very specific example that we can all relate with, especially within Storehouse and within Reformed churches in general, is this Christian liberty idea. Now, Christian liberty is perfectly fine. It's true. 
right? It's a response to the holiness movement, which is also perfectly fine, just in case you were wondering, where basically it's saying, and we'll use alcohol as an example so it makes it easy because we all know alcohol, right? It's saying that you can drink alcohol and you're not sinning. Absolutely true, right? Sin is drunkenness. Christ calls us to be sober-minded. And so don't get drunk and you're fine. That's basically what it's saying. Christian liberty, though, what we see is that it became a cultural trend within the church beyond just a you know, clarification on certain doctrine or theology or behavior. It became a trend where people began to identify with Christian liberty as part of who they are as Christians. And it gains this momentum and becomes this thing outside of scripture. Christian liberty became this thing where it was basically, if anyone infringes on my right to do anything that's not expressly prohibited in scripture, then they're sinning against me and I will get angry and I will think poorly of them. It has led to people condemning those who do hold to the holiness movement, which once again is not a bad thing, which is basically saying that alcohol is dangerous and so I'm going to abstain from it. Someone can totally do that and that's awesome. And they should. Alcohol is dangerous. You have too much, you will sin. You will be drunk. And so if you feel like you're in danger of sinning, it's totally fine not to have any. And yet we see parties from both these camps warring against each other, saying that the other person is in sin when they're not, just because they want to be a part of some popular theological trend and feel like they're part of a group and that their freedom isn't infringed upon. And we see it even more within just like the daily of life here in the valley. Man, it's okay to go to the bar and get a drink, right? Go to Roosevelt's, love getting a porter. It's delicious. But have we ever gone somewhere, had a drink, had a, two drinks, whatever, and we see a brother or a sister have just one too many? And their reaction is, oh man, I, I just had too many. You know, I, I better be careful. Um, I won't do it again. But that one too many happens every month. And we use excuses like we just want to, you know, reach the lost. And so we got to, you know, make sure that we drink. And sometimes, you know, things just get out of hand. And, you know, but I'm just building relationship. We use the excuse of Christian liberty to allow us to just sin whenever we want, as long as we feel bad about it later or think, oh, we really shouldn't do that. But there's no true repentance. Galatians 5.13 says, you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And this is just one example of our apathy towards sin. We see this in, in popular culture because this is the way Jude is expressing it. He's saying, don't fall into this. Rather, stay firm in the theology and the doctrine set down by the apostles. What is in scripture should be the end all. All the other stuff should go to the wayside. And it will save us from some of these apathetic trends that we see. But I mean, this, this also bleeds into what we've already talked about. With like lying, we're totally okay with it. Somebody ghosts us, it's fine. 
I'll do it too. <laughs> this is the way we think. We must stay firm in our theology because the Bible should be our end all. We cannot be apathetic toward false teaching and sin. The third thing, the third way we react is that we are actively engaged in it. We actively participate in false teaching. And maybe this is Christian liberty. Maybe you're that person that you get tipsy once a month. Maybe it's just a hard day at work. You're at home, still listen. Or maybe you're the one that's promoting Joel Olstein's books because it just makes me feel good, you know? Is it really that dangerous? Does he really say anything that dangerous? Yes, he is. Or maybe it's that double life where Sunday I'm a different person than the rest of the week. Or maybe at night, after everyone's gone to bed, I'm a different person than I am during the day. Or maybe when I'm at home with my family, I act this way and, and I strive to honor God, but when I go to work, I act like everyone else. Because I want to fit in, I want to be a part of the culture there. Or maybe we're living with that secret sin and we're fine with it. It's just a part of who I am. I just struggle with anger. It's just who I am. I'm sorry if I lash out at you. It's just who I am. Maybe we are so focused on caring for other people within the church or outside of it, which is a great thing. But what we see then is that my family suffers and I'm never home. I'm too busy getting together with the boys, but I'm never home with the kids. Or maybe you're engaged in it by actively lying to yourself about your identity in Christ. Denying the work of Jesus, like I was. I was denying the work of the Holy Spirit and denying what scripture teaches me about myself. And then the fourth reaction, we could do all those things or we could contend for the gospel. We can fight for truth, understand what it is, proclaim the gospel to ourselves, to others, and we speak up when we hear something false. We encourage and rebuke sin. We confess our own sin and we repent of it. We love one another, actively love one another. What would it look like if we just loved one another all the time? Rather than being worried about our own schedule, being worried about our own comfort, what would it look like to actually live a life that reflects the gospel? We contend for the gospel by living a life above reproach in all aspects. Will Jesus at the end say, well done, good and faithful servant, or is he going to say, leave me, I never knew you? There's no in-between here. There, there is no possibility for a lukewarm lifestyle. Don't lie to yourself and believe that you can just get by. Because when you're living a life that is teaching a false gospel and when you are actively proclaiming false teachings, then you are leading people away and you will be held accountable. 
Do not dishonor the name of God with lukewarm hearts. Love him, pursue him, obey him. And God says he will welcome you and embrace you. As a son and as a daughter, he will love you and make you his own. That is a promise from him if we just love him and honor him and obey him. Because our failure in this is hardening the hearts of non-believers and believers alike. And so, to end everything, what can we do? What's the practical application for our life right now? How can we be prepared to contend for the gospel every day? First thing, be humble. You gotta check yourself. You have to be willing to admit that, man, you don't know everything. And some things that you may have believed for a very long time may be wrong. You have to be humble. Matthew 7, 21, 23 is when Jesus is saying, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Didn't we go to church? Didn't we do all the things? I even led a small group. And then Jesus will declare, I never knew you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, people whose actions reflected a false gospel. Be humble. Let the Holy Spirit control your life, not you. Second, pray. You want to learn humility? You want to allow yourself to be open to correction from the Holy Spirit and others? Be on your knees in prayer. Submit yourself regularly to him. What I pray more often than anything is born out of the fact that I know I'm super prideful. What I pray every single day, multiple times a day, is God, please help me submit to you. And that's it. Because I know I need it. Because I do not want to submit. I want my way. We must pray and seek and pursue submission to the Holy Spirit and to God. Third, know your theology. You gotta read your Bible. You gotta know it, you gotta understand it. Be willing to ask questions. This doesn't mean that you have to, you know, go to school for it. You don't have to get a master's in theology but you need to read your Bible. It's important. And then test everything to Scripture. In 1 Thessalonians 5, he's saying that we must test everything to Scripture. You can't test it if you don't know it. We don't go through our life with a Bible in front of us just open all the time that magically opens to a page that you know, rejects whatever we hear. No, we hear something and you either know that it's false or you assume that it's true. You got to know your Bible and you got to engage in community because we're not going to be able to fight against false teaching if we're not around people. You can't be on your own. 
and we got to confess and repent sin. This kind of goes with humility. You got to be willing to know that you're wrong. It was not easy for me to admit to all of you and everyone online that I had been living in sin until just like a month ago in this one area. And you know what else? I'm pretty much 100% confident that God is going to do it to me again later. And there's going to be something else. We are not inerrant. God is holy and perfect and wonderful. We're not right all the time. Then lastly, you got to be courageous. You got to be bold. It's okay to say something. Now, we got to say it with love. Don't be a jerk. But you can go to your brother and be like, hey, I hear you saying this. I, I don't think that's in Scripture. And then point them to Scripture. And then the very, very last thing and then we're done. The very last thing is that we have to remember who we are. You are a son or a daughter of the living God, the Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. Hear me on this. Your identity is grounded in his holy, perfect character, and you have been forgiven and made holy yourself. The Holy Spirit, he dwells within you and he reveals himself in you. We can know him. We can recognize and rebuke false teaching, and we can live a life in holiness and in truth. It's possible. If you come away with anything today, let it be that, that you are loved by him and he makes it possible. This is, this, I know today has a lot of like calling out on different things, but the message is a good one that God makes it possible for us to live in holiness. False teaching is dangerous and it is rampant. We should not live in fear of it because through the Holy Spirit, we have no cause to fear. We can stand firmly and proudly and announce to the world what a believer in Christ actually looks like. And just like Paul that said, hey, look at me as an example, not out of pride, but because I know I'm obeying my father. We should all have the freedom to be able to say that. My prayer for you is that you will be able to. And if you're sitting here and you're not a Christian, you haven't believed Man, you can. Your identity can be that. Your identity can be grounded in God and you can have freedom to live a life of holiness. You can kill sin and put it aside because God is victory. So if that's you where you've never made that decision, today's the day to do it. Today's the day to cast aside all the false teaching that you've ever heard, all the things that you read on the internet, all the stuff you see on the news that claim these things about Jesus. Today's the day you can know who he really is. And let me tell you, he is the best thing that will ever happen to you. Today is the day, don't let it pass you by. I am so grateful that we have a God who loves us enough to actually teach us. 
allow him to do that in your own life. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for who you are. God, you are, you are wonderful. You're beautiful. God, you're my savior. You've done more for me than I could ever, ever express. I was condemned and I have been made clean. Lord, and you offer this freely. You say that if you just believe and confess that we can be transformed. Lord, my prayer, Holy Spirit, do, do a work. My prayer is that people in this place, whether you have known him for a long time or you haven't, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit's prompting on your heart, whether it's for redemption for repentance, whether it's for making that commitment for the first time, or maybe you are just in awe of who he is, my prayer is that you will embrace the Holy Spirit's prompting right now and submit yourself to him. Lord, I thank you so much. I just thank you. God, you are holy or wonderful. Allow Storehouse to be a place where you are honored in the lives and in the actions and in the words spoken by every single person here. Let us be a beacon in this world where we can say, this is who Jesus is. Look at my life, not because of me, but because of the Holy Spirit, because of Jesus, because of what the Father has done. Let storehouse be that place.